Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your goodness and your grace and for the many ways that you put that on display in and among us here at Taylor's First Baptist Church. We are grateful this evening especially for your word. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. And we pray that the time that we spend here together today would help us to better understand and appreciate your word just a little bit more, whether what we're hearing is, is something that we've heard for all of our Christian lives and it's just a little bit of reinforcement or whether it's something that maybe we've not thought a lot about before, Lord. We entrust all that to you. And we pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the words of Scripture would give us wisdom today and help us to rightly think about the Scriptures uh, for our good, for your glory, and for the sake of the health of this church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about the Taylor's Institute. Some of you heard me say this on Wednesday night. A couple of you uh, had sidebar conversations and you've heard me say something like this. Uh, but I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, you're going to hear me say it a lot in the coming months. And so if you're the sort of person who gets tired of hearing things reinforced, you, uh, you might not want to hear this. But theology is not first and foremost an academic discipline for scholars or pastors. I'm not saying it's not an academic discipline. I have a doctorate in theological studies. It is an academic incident. Uh, incident. It is an academic discipline. But that's not what theology is first and foremost. Theology is for the church, first and foremost. And theology, while you can come up with all kinds of definitions that make sense in a textbook or in a classroom or something like that, and, and through the Taylor's Institute and other settings, we might have a chance to talk about some of those. Big picture when we think about everything we hope to do with the Taylor's Institute. Theology is thinking rightly about God and his world for the sake of living rightly before God in his world. So let me say that one more time. Theology is thinking rightly about God and his world for the sake of living rightly before God in his world. If learning about Christian doctrine and ethics and kind of all the implications of what the Bible teaches, if learning about all that stuff doesn't cause us to love the Lord more and love the church more and love lost people more, then we're not doing theology right. Because theology is supposed to cause us to grow in our love of the one that we're studying. In fact, did you know that in any other topic of any kind, whether it's a religious topic or a secular topic, in every other topic, if you love what you're studying too much, it's idolatry. You thought about that before? If you love economics too much, it's idolatry. If you love history too much, it's idolatry. If you love entrepreneurship too much, it's idolatry. If you love math too much, it's idolatry. 
Theology is the only topic in the world where we can't love the subject we're studying enough. And in fact, the more we love the subject, capital S, that we're studying, the more we're worshiping the topic that we're studying, and that's what we ought to do whenever we're talking about theology. So the purpose of the Taylor's Institute is to provide opportunities for members of Taylor's First Baptist to think rightly about God and his world for the sake of living rightly before God in his world, to his glory, for the sake of the health of our church, and for the sake of the advance of the kingdom as he works in and among us to bring about his purposes in our nation and among the nations, which is also to his glory. Now, I do want to clear up a little bit of confusion, uh, and, and maybe you're not confused, and so if you're not confused, you can tune out for just a minute. But I've talked to enough of you kind of around that I think there's a little bit of confusion about this. The Institute is not the same thing as the residency program. And so I've had a number of people come to me and they've said, well, you know, the Institute sounds interesting, but I don't feel called to the ministry. Or I'm not looking to get seminary credit. Or I don't know about church planting. The Lord is doing some really, really exciting things at Taylor's First Baptist through the residency program, through church planting initiatives, through our partnership with Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. But that is not the Taylor's Institute. The Taylor's Institute is for all of us to dig deeper into the scriptures and everything that the scripture teaches about all stuff. It lives in that space, if you will, between life groups and the sort of classes where you have to take tests and read books. <laughs> it's that space in between, digging a little bit deeper, learning about some stuff maybe from different angles. But it's not the sort of classes where you're getting graded. I mean, you're always being graded. But it's not the sort of class where uh, we're being graded. That's not what we're doing through the Institute. Now, the Institute, Lord willing, will fully launch early fall 2023, around the time of the start of the next school year or the next uh, church calendar year. Uh, so Lord willing, it will fully launch then, and its main offering is going to be a Wednesday night series of classes that will probably be a two-year program that's going to address all kinds of topics in, in short classes over the course of a few weeks, like how to read and interpret the Bible, basic Christian doctrines, basic church history, what do Baptists believe, Christian ethics, faith and culture, these sorts of topics and others are the sort of topics that we'll uh, be doing on Wednesday nights through the Taylor's Institute. I will not teach all of that material. That was my wife who just giggled. I will not teach all of that material. I will teach some of that material, but, um, but there will be uh, some of you, some of our pastors and other members who God has gifted as teachers in this church will be teaching some of that material. And those are the sort of things that we're thinking through right now. Uh, in fact, what I'm giving you is, is very, very previewish uh, because we've not even had our big meeting 
uh, with the pastoral team yet to talk through all of this. We've talked around some of it. We're actually meeting this week. You can pray for us. We're going to meet later this week and have our first kind of big whiteboard where we're starting to really think through some of those plans for the fall. But we know the concept, and then that's the concept, is this sort of Wednesday night opportunity to dig deeper on these topics. And then Lord willing, in addition to that Wednesday night program, which is going to kind of be the anchor offering, if you will, of the Taylor's Institute, there'll be other things that are going on. One of them is exactly what we're doing today. Uh, the hope is to a handful of times a year, maybe a couple times, maybe as much as four times, having just an afternoon session on a, on a Sunday or on a Saturday where we come together and talk about uh, some sort of topic that's for everybody, just for those who aren't involved in Wednesday nights to complement and supplement those things that we do on Wednesday nights. And so we hope to have these seminars where just for an hour or two, whether it's me or whether it's another pastor or teacher in the church, maybe it's an outside speaker that we bring in, but we dig into those topics as well. And so we thought that this particular seminar, both because of the topic we're talking about and because of what it is, it's a part of the Taylor's Institute, this would be a great sort of baby step into the Taylor's Institute, both to serve the congregation, you're here I hope because you're interested in the topic, but also just to give you kind of a foretaste of the sort of thing that's to come. So what we're doing today is not the only thing we're going to be doing, it's not even necessarily the main thing we're going to be doing, but it's a part of it. The question is just how can we all as a church go deeper as the Lord provides us with opportunities and interests, how can we dig a little bit deeper for the glory of God? So before we get started on the topic in just a second, here is the big takeaway. There's two, okay? Big takeaways. Theology is not an academic discipline. Theology is for the church, okay? Theology is for everybody. And then number two, the Taylor's Institute is not just for pastors or deacons or life group leaders or young men who are wrestling with a call to pastoral ministry or young ladies who are wrestling with a call to missions, people who are part of the residency program. And the Taylor's Institute is for all those folks. But the Taylor's Institute isn't just for those folks. The Taylor's Institute is for everybody. Everyone in the church who is interested in digging deeper in that space between the things that we do on Sunday mornings in our life groups and the stuff that people do in a classroom somewhere for a college or for a seminary or something like that. Theology isn't even just for, excuse me, the Taylor's Institute will theology do, but the Taylor's Institute isn't even just for the nerds. Some of you are nerds, and that's why you're here today, right? And, and listen, it's okay. I'm not being mean. I know one when I see one. I, I are one. Okay? But theology isn't just for the nerds. Theology is for all of us. The Taylor's Institute is for everybody who's interested in digging deeper. So that's my brief preview to the Taylor's Institute. And you'll hear more and more about that in the weeks to come uh, in various ways. And I would ask for your prayers as we continue to think through and plan through uh, what we think the Lord is going to do uh, through the Taylor's Institute. What I want to do now is shift our attention to the topic at hand. Why we can trust 
the Bible. Or sometimes I've titled this talk, What Does the Bible Teach About Itself Whenever It Comes to Its Trustworthiness? But that's a clunkier title. So we're going to call it Why We Can Trust the Bible. And the background of this is this, this talk, I've given this talk a number of times. I've talked about this in uh, college and university settings with students. And I've talked about it in local churches, uh, just like we're doing right now. Uh, but the genesis of this talk was actually at a collegiate conference uh, about a dozen years ago. Uh, I was on faculty at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, the seminary that we have a, uh, a partnership with uh, here at Taylor's. And, uh, and every year, Southeastern Seminary would do a conference in February for college students. And between 800 on a low year and 12 or 1300 on a high year, uh, we would have college students from all over the place, including uh, upstate South Carolina, who would come and for 24 hours it would be helping to equip them to address the big questions in life, whatever those were. And, uh, and the thing that I had the opportunity to talk to them about and then develop it out over time is this topic of why we can trust the Bible. And uh, the topic matters not just for college students, but for all of us, because Americans are really, really confused when it comes to the Bible. I mean really confused. On the one hand, statistics show that 9 out of 10 Americans still own at least one Bible. And almost 90% of Americans believe that the Bible is a sacred or holy book in some sense. That sounds pretty good, right? On the other hand, biblical teachings, especially biblical teachings about morality or ethics, are increasingly unpopular among Americans. And all you have to do is... Look at any poll about any debatable moral issue and it's moving this way, not this way, in terms of Americans having what Bible-believing Christians would say are the right opinions about many of these things. So how is it that Americans can affirm the Bible is a holy book and also reject so much of what it says? especially about the most controversial topics in our culture. Well, I think one reason is that while Americans in general might have a nostalgic appreciation for the Bible or warm fuzzies about the Bible or maybe even a superstitious appreciation of the Bible, they don't actually believe the Bible is a reliable word from because if they believed it was a reliable word from God, there wouldn't be that disconnect between feeling good about the Bible and whatever that means and believing what the Bible actually teaches. Unfortunately, sometimes even Christians aren't really sure that the Bible is a trustworthy word from God or that all of the Bible is a trustworthy word from God, or that the Bible is trustworthy when it speaks to everything in life. Maybe, maybe it's okay for some things, the religious stuff. But what about all the other stuff? There's a lot of confusion, even in our churches, 
And of course, it doesn't help when major periodicals publish articles that claim to tell the real story behind biblical events or figures, or when channels like the History Channel or A&E air documentaries that deal more with conspiracy theories about the Bible than they do the Bible itself. How many of you, quick show of hands, has ever had a friend or family member that was thoroughly confused because they picked up a, uh, a magazine or they saw something on television and they came asking you crazy questions about the Bible? You ever been in that situation? Or does that just happen to pastors? I don't know. But, uh, but it happens. I mean, you go through the checkout line and, and there it is. You know, every year, right around Easter, the real story behind Jesus. You know, the real story behind the resurrection. Friends, make no mistake about it. Satan wants believers to love the Bible in a sentimental or in a superstitious way without actually treating the Bible as the inspired, trustworthy, written word of God and allowing it to shape our lives. Satan has no problem with you having a really high opinion of the Bible as long as you don't actually read it and obey what it says and allow it to shape your life. Now, if I can dive just a little bit into recent history, Taylor's First Baptist Church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And some of you have been involved in Southern Baptist life long enough, or you've paid attention to Southern Baptist life long enough to know that we've had a major controversy in our tradition in the previous generation over the trustworthiness of the Bible. How many of you are at least vaguely aware that something like that happened? That doesn't surprise me. Most of us are at least passingly familiar with this. So let me give you just a really brief overview of this. Between 1979 and the year 2000, the Southern Baptists were embroiled in a controversy that centered over the question of whether or not the Bible can be trusted. We call this controversy the conservative resurgence. And this is why it happened. In the period between World War II and the mid-1990s, many Southern Baptist pastors, but even more, at least from a percentage standpoint, Southern Baptist denominational leaders, like seminary professors, like curriculum writers for the old Sunday school board, what we now call Lifeway Christian Resources, even some missionaries who served with our two mission boards. A growing number of those individuals argued that the Bible is basically trustworthy when it comes to telling you how to get saved, but that it's not fully truthful when it's speaking to other stuff. Stuff like history. Stuff like where the universe came from. Sometimes even things like basic morality or ethics. Now, the vast majority of Southern Baptist pastors and certainly the vast majority of the people in the pews rejected that argument. They said, no, the Bible is a trustworthy word of God. And if you say it can't be trusted in this area, let's say history, well, then how do we know it's trustworthy in this area? 
What does it mean to be saved? How do you decide which parts can we can trust and which parts we can't, which parts are inspired and which parts are not? And, and so Southern Baptists, the vast majority, rose up and said, no, no, that is not what we want taught in our seminaries. That's not what we want our pastors to believe. That's not what we want hinted at, rarely said outright, but hinted at in our Sunday school literature. Or how many of you remember church training? That's not what we want in our church training literature. That's No, we want reinforced the idea that the Bible is the Word of God and that it's trustworthy because that's what we believe to be true. Now, this idea that the Bible is trustworthy, that it's truthful, we call that the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. I mean, you've heard that phrase before, inerrancy or the inerrancy of Scripture. And those of us who believe that the Bible is totally truthful call ourselves inerrantists. And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. So for the next few minutes, I want us to get into this topic that was such a hot topic in Southern Baptist life, including some churches in Greenville not that long ago, or Greenville County, not that far, not that far back. And what I'm going to argue in the next few minutes is that Scripture is trustworthy and that the Bible teaches this about itself. But this isn't some theory that's hanging out there. The Bible teaches that it is a trustworthy word from God. And we're going to focus our attention on seven claims that the Bible makes about itself. When we take them together... Those seven claims reinforce the idea that the Bible is a trustworthy, written word from God. Some of them are going to be pretty easy claims. A couple of them, we're going to put on our thinking caps and dig a little bit deeper. But our goal at the end is that everybody is clear that we can trust the Bible. And the Bible teaches that it's trustworthy. And in fact, the Bible demands of us that we believe it's a trustworthy word from God. So with that, let's talk about the first claim. And the first claim is actually not about the Bible, it's about God. And that is, God does not lie. God does not lie. For those of you who are note-takers, I've tried to make this where you can see it. Two verses. Among many, for all of these, we're going to pick just a couple of verses that, that reinforce. And some of the verses reinforce multiple points. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? For John 17, 17, we'll reference this one a couple of times. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. One of the defining attributes of God, one of the defining features of who he is, is that he does not lie. And he always tells the truth. And this is reinforced from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, in addition to the two verses I read, Titus 
1-2 in the New Testament. Hebrews 6.18, two other verses that tell us in a very straightforward way, uh, God is not a liar. God is always truthful. Our words reflect our character. We know this is true. And even if maybe you've never thought about it for yourself, you know when someone doesn't have good character by the words they use, right? You know weasel words when you hear them. You know weasel words. You know that person that you can't fully take her at her word because she's always kind of mentally got her fingers crossed, even if she doesn't literally have her fingers crossed and that's been borne out because the character doesn't match the words of the Character and words are closely tied together, and we know this in an everyday sort of way from how we interact with other people. But Scripture shows us that the same principle applies to God. His character and His words match up. Except, unlike us, God's character is perfectly holy. It's not tainted by sin. There's nothing bent or broken or stained or wonky or deceptive or off about God's character. His character is perfect. And his words, like our words, are tied to his character. So this is the bottom line. Because God's character is perfectly holy and truthful, all of his words are perfectly truthful. That's the first claim. And again, it's a claim mostly about God's character. But there's a second claim. This one takes us to probably the most famous verse about the Bible in the Bible. Second claim is that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The point of this passage is that God has inspired, or maybe the image even better is he's expired the scriptures. Paul is talking about what we call the Old Testament when he refers to the scriptures. This is as the New Testament was still in the process of being written at this point. So he's referring to what we call the Old Testament, which, by the way, the Old Testament is simply the Bible that Jesus read. The Old Testament was the scripture of the earliest Christians. So that's what he's referring to here. More on that in a minute. And it doesn't say, notice, that he breathed something into the Bible. So it's not like the Bible's there, and the Holy Spirit does something to the Bible, and now it's inspired. That's not the image here. Rather, it says that God breathed out the Scriptures. 
Just like we breathe out words, God has breathed out the scriptures. And as one of my former seminary colleagues used to say, God don't have bad breath. <laughs> now notice four ideas in the passage. We see that the writings themselves are inspired, not the writers. So it's not like you might picture from some medieval portrait where there's a group of men walking around with halos all the time and everything they write is inspired. That's not what's happening here. It's these particular writings that are inspired, not the men themselves. Notice number two, he says that all of the writings are inspired. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Number three, there are no decrees of inspiration. He doesn't say some of it's more inspired than the rest. Or that some of it's just sort of inspired. Or mostly inspired. It's just all inspired. And then number four, all of the writings are profitable, even if different writings are profitable in different ways for correction, reproof, instruction, training, and righteousness. These passages argue that all of the scriptures are inspired and that the very words themselves are inspired. We're going to dig into that with a couple of other claims. But right now, it's enough to say. All of the scriptures are inspired, and the words themselves are inspired. But what about this Old Testament New Testament thing? I just told you that in the original context, Paul is writing to Timothy about what we call the Old Testament. So does that mean it's only the Old Testament that's inspired? What's well, not? It applies to the New Testament as well. Listen to what Peter says about the writings of Paul in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. This is Peter writing about Paul. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, you feel a little better about that? Even Peter says some of what Paul writes is hard to understand sometimes. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, believes that Paul is writing scripture. Now, we need to put ourselves in their shoes for just a minute because we often gravitate to the New Testament because we're Christians and most of us are Gentiles. And that's our context. But here, remember, it's the Old Testament that they know is inspired. And what Peter has just said is those letters that Paul are writing are inspired in the same way the Old Testament is. They're scriptures. And all scripture is breathed out by God. So these verses confirm that what Paul teaches about all scripture in 1 Timothy should be applied to the New Testament scriptures just as much as the Old Testament scriptures. They're all scriptures. 
Because God has breathed out all of Scripture, all of Scripture can be trusted. That's our second claim. But there's a third claim. Now we're going to start learning more terms. Claim three, Scripture is infallible. Not preachers. Preachers aren't infallible. Even dapper preachers like that one on the screen. But Scripture is infallible. Listen to what Psalm 19.7 says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If something is infallible, we don't use that word a lot. If something is infallible, what that means is it is incapable of deceiving. It is incapable of erring. It is incapable of leading us astray. It can't do it. It is infallible. It can't fall in any way. Most Bible-believing Christians argue that inspiration, God breathing out the scriptures, implies infallibility. Because God breathed it out and God does not lie, it is incapable of being wrong. It is incapable of deceiving us. Because if God can be trusted, then his written words, by definition, can be trusted. The reason I have Pastor Josh's picture up there because I would argue, and I think almost all of you would agree, biblical infallibility, having a Bible that is incapable of misleading us, incapable of deceiving us, is a necessary component of authoritative preaching and sound doctrine. Because if the Bible can lead us astray, how do we know that we can trust our pastors when they say, thus saith the Lord? I mean, hopefully we all understand that simply being a pastor or a minister or a teacher or pick whatever title you want to, simply having that title doesn't necessarily grant somebody authority, right? The authority is connected directly to his faithfulness to teach the word and live in a way that's consistent with the word. So if he stands up and says, the Bible says, and we can't trust the Bible, we can't trust our preachers or our teachers. There's no solid ground to stand on, to think rightly about God in his world for the sake of living rightly before God in his world. We need an infallible Bible if we're going to have faithful preaching and teaching. Or it's really just one person's opinion, even if we happen to agree with it at the moment that it's being given. If the Bible's capable of leading us astray, how do we know we can trust any of it? 
I know that's a slippery slope argument. I get that. And I know that slippery slopes aren't inevitable. But just in an everyday way, I'm asking the question, if we can't trust some of it, how do we know we can trust any of it? If some of it can lead us astray, how do we know all of it might not lead us astray? Because God inspired the Bible. It is holy, completely, utterly incapable of erring. The Bible is infallible. And that's closely related to the fourth claim, and now we're going to use the big one. Scripture is inerrant. Scripture is inerrant. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then again, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word inerrancy is a relatively new word in the English language. The word inerrancy became popular in the 19th century. But it's really just a modern way of stating an idea that Christians have always believed all the way back to the first century. And it's just simply this. When the Bible speaks, it can be trusted. When the Bible speaks, it can be trusted. Christians have always believed that. Almost every Christian, almost everywhere, and almost every tradition for almost all of history. That's the default factory setting. And inerrancy is our modern English word to capture that idea. Does that make sense? If every word of God is true, and that includes his written words, then every word of Scripture is true. Now we need to be careful here. This doesn't mean that every word of Scripture is precise or technical in the same way we think of those terms today. Now, before you think I'm going in a bad place, let me explain what I mean. The Bible says that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Is that technically true? It's not technically true, but is that true about the way that we experience the sun? Yeah. I mean, that's what we observe with our eyes, right? It's not false to say that the Bible rises in the east and sets in the west. It, it's rising in the east and it's setting in the west. But that's not precise. What's precise is the earth is rotating and that's what creates this uh, picture of the rising and the setting, that's, that's what we mean. The Bible isn't a science textbook or a history textbook. Sometimes the Bible uses round numbers. There are places where it tells us that 10,000 people fought in a fight. Is the Bible lying to us if it was 992 people? Or 9,992 people. That's not. It's 10,000 people fighting in a fight, right? In the same way that we use everyday colloquial language to communicate truth, sometimes the Bible does that. But that's not errors. And it certainly isn't deception. It's figurative language. Or it's 
general observational language rather than scientific technical language. Inerrancy recognizes that the original human authors were writing out of their particular context to those original readers. They weren't writing theology textbook for people 2,000 years from now, or 6,000 years from now, or whenever. They were writing for their people in a way that they could understand. It doesn't mean that every word is precise or technical in exactly the way that we define those terms. But what it does mean is that the words communicate truth from God no matter what the Bible is addressing. It's always speaking truthfully. Now, inerrancy and infallibility are closely related to each other. And both of those concepts are necessary implications of inspiration. Sometimes there are left-wing Christians. You know what I'm talking about when I say left-wing Christian, right? You ever met a left-wing Christian? Somebody, you know, they go to church, but they don't really believe the Bible? There are people like that who sometimes try to redefine these terms, and they'll say things like, uh, you know, well, well, infallibility means that it's infallibly going to lead you on a path to God, or it's, you know, infallibly going to maybe answer how do you get saved, or it's infallibly, they used to say, it's going to infallibly teach you right from wrong, but they don't say that anymore, because they disagree with what the Bible says about right and wrong. So people do that, weasel words, we talked about that a minute ago, you get weasel words sometimes, but at the end of the day, these are complementary terms, and they're not weasel words. Because the Bible is infallible and it is incapable of erring, it is thus inerrant. It is without error. It does not mislead us. It speaks totally truthfully. Inerrancy refers to the is of the Bible's truthfulness. It is inerrant. Infallibility refers to the why of the Bible's truthfulness. It is inerrant because it is infallible. It is incapable of falling. It is incapable of deceiving misleadiness. Now, for those of you who like such things, I do have a definition of inerrancy. A technical definition. It just means the Bible's truthful. Some of you like this sort of thing, and so I want to bless you if you do. The theologian Paul Feinberg gives what I think is the best helpful kind of one deep sentence about inerrancy. He says, inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm. Whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. You can find other definitions that are similar to this in, in any good kind of evangelical or Baptist theology textbook. Now, as Feinberg's definition observes, it's important that we make a key distinction at this point. Full infallibility and inerrancy applies only to the original autographs or manuscripts of Scripture. How many of you have heard this before? It's the original writings themselves that are fully inerrant or infallible. Our Bibles today are translations of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of the original manuscripts. 
We are not aware of anywhere in the world where there is an original manuscript preserved. And I just want to say, I think that's probably a good thing. Because I think if there was one, we'd probably find a way to turn it into a golden calf. And, and get all superstitious and weird about it. Here is the original draft of the book of Joel, or whatever the case might be. However, our lack of original manuscripts doesn't mean we cannot trust our English Bibles. I want you to bear with me for just a minute. Our Bibles, your Bible in front of you, your King James, or English Standard, or NIV, or New American Standard, or whatever it is that you have, Christian Standard, your English Bible is essentially infallible and inerrant. It's essentially infallible or inerrant. And here's why we can say that. Textual critics, the scholars who study the different manuscripts and compare them together and try to find the old manuscripts and find the best manuscripts, Textual critics have demonstrated that we have every reason to believe that our modern Bibles accurately reflect the earliest available manuscripts. In fact, there are far more and far older copies of the Bible than any other manuscript from the ancient world on any other topic. Did you know that we have no evidence that Julius Caesar existed until after he was alive? There's nothing contemporaneous to Julius Caesar that tells us there was someone named Julius Caesar. But do you know anybody that doubts Julius Caesar was a real person? Not many. We have hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts virtually contemporaneous to the Old Testament events that they describe. And we have thousands of New Testament manuscripts that are contemporaneous to the events that they describe. There is far more evidence for the historical truthfulness of the Bible than any other ancient text of any other kind. And by the way, there are plenty of unbelieving scholars who say that. They don't think it's true but they would concede what I just said because it is a fact that those sources are there. So as one scholar says, our Bibles are the word of God to the extent that they reflect the scripture as originally given. And because it is clear that they are virtually identical to it, it is also correct to regard them as virtually infallible themselves. Here's the bottom line. Over 99% of the words in your English Bibles match multiple copies of the oldest manuscripts that we can find. And not a single doctrine or ethic, ethical position, is changed by the less than 1% where they don't line up perfectly. Where they don't line up perfectly, it's literally things like, is there a definite article there or not? Is there a the there? 
Is it singular or plural? It's almost all that sort of stuff. It, it doesn't affect any area of belief. And for that reason, Bible-believing Christians say, even though we do not have a perfectly complete original edition of the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic, we can say with absolute certainty, you can trust that your English Bibles are without error. They will not deceive you. They are not filled with falsehood. They do not misspeak about God and his world. Because God does not err, his written words do not err. The fifth claim, divine inspiration is plenary. Romans 15, chapter 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written. Now, I already referenced this idea when we were talking about 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Scripture is inspired as a whole, not just in parts. How many of you have ever been to a conference before or a symposium or some sort of event, maybe related to work, maybe it was a, a Christian conference of some kind? You know the difference between a plenary session and a breakout session, right? What's a plenary session? Everybody. Everybody goes. Breakout session, only, only some people go. So when we say that the Bible is plenarily inspired, what we mean is all, the whole thing, every bit of it, like a plenary session is everybody at the conference. All the Bible is inspired, not just parts. This includes every part of Scripture, even those books that seem less important than the others. Now, I don't want you to think I'm unspiritual when I say that, but you know you're sitting there and you're thinking, Nahum isn't as important as Romans. <laughs> you know you think Obadiah is not as important as Matthew. But it's just as inspired. Even if it's not profitable and useful and correcting in exactly the same way, because different scriptures, God uses them in different ways in our lives. It's all inspired. The entire Bible is inspired. All of it's profitable in various ways. And all of it is telling the same story. What some Bible scholars call the true story of the whole world. Every word of every verse of every book by every author in both testaments is telling the same story. It's all the true story of the whole world. Because every part of the Bible is trustworthy. Every part of the scriptures is inspired. But not only do we believe in verbal, excuse me, in plenary inspiration. Claim six, divine inspiration is verbal. Matthew 4, 4, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. By the way, who was Jesus saying that to? Satan. Or Matthew 5, 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is 
the very words of Scripture are inspired. Now, there are some out there who argue that thoughts and not words are inspired. But those are weasel words. Because you don't have thoughts without words. It's all, it's all tied together. That's an artificial distinction. Words are symbols of thoughts that are necessary to communication. And the triune God expresses his thoughts to us through verbal communication. Just three examples. God spoke and he created the universe by the power of his word. God's Son is called the Divine Word. God's Spirit illumines the written Word and helps us to rightly understand it and apply it. Scripture is the extension of God's being a speaking God. He is there, some of you may be familiar with the Francis Schaeffer book, He is There and He is Not Silent. God has been speaking from the very beginning of history, when he created history. God is a speaking God. The very words of Scripture are breathed out by God. All Scripture is inspired. Every word of Scripture is trustworthy because God inspired every word. It's not just that the Bible is inspired in general. The words are inspired. They're God's words. But this raises a really big question, right? Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, God doesn't lie. And he breathes out the Bible. And it's inspired. And all of it's inspired. And it doesn't have any errors and whatnot. So, does that mean there's no real, meaningful human authorship of the Bible? Did some sort of trance come over the biblical authors and they're just writing down God's words while the Holy Spirit's whispering in their ears? That brings us to claim number seven. There wasn't a way to say this one in four or five words. Scripture represents a convergence between God's words and human's words. Scripture represents a convergence between God's words and human words. 2 Samuel 23, 2, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. 2 Peter 1, 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are really the words of God, and they are really the words of men. Both divine breath and human pen. The Bible is duly authored. Divine breath and human pen. This is a theme that we find frequently in the Bible, by the way. Whenever God and man, there's a convergence. Let me just give you one very famous example. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. I was not yet a member of Taylor's First Baptist, but Pastor Joshua preached on this verse at some point in the past few months. 
Acts 2.23 tells us that lawless men crucified Christ, but it was done according to the definite purpose and foreknowledge of God. They really killed him with evil intent. And it really was God's foreknown plan. So I ask you, who is responsible? Well, there's a sense in which both are responsible, right? The humans are responsible for the sinful actions that killed a man unjustly. God is responsible for a sovereign plan of salvation that brought about the means of saving each of us and countless others from people of every tribe and tongue and nation. We're in the realm of mystery here. But it's a convergence that happens. Jesus' death was according to the will of both a perfectly holy God and heinously sinful men. It really was his plan, and it really was their choice. He really is holy. They really are sinful. Or let me give you another example of a different type. The entire New Testament makes clear that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He really is fully divine. Everything that's true of God in general, if you will, is true of Jesus in particular. And yet he really is a man. And everything that's true of men in general is true of Jesus in particular. Now, I don't know exactly how to tease those mysteries out, but I don't think we can ignore them because they are mysterious. The Bible teaches this. God's at work and we're at work, and sometimes we're not sure how to reconcile that, but we know it's true, and Jesus is fully God and fully man, and, and we don't know how to do that math, and yet it's fully true. And in the same way, the Bible really is God's words, and it really is men's words. When you're reading the book of Acts, you're reading God's words, and you're reading Luke's words. Did you know that all the Bible authors don't write the same way? Luke is a great writer. He's really eloquent. Really eloquent. Mark would have been a C student in a seminary class. Bad grammar. Bad grammar. Makes grammatical mistakes with what was common in the Greek of that day. Really the words of Mark, and yet really God's words. Really the words of Luke, and yet really God's words. Even though the Bible was written by fallible and untrustworthy men, I don't mean they were egregious sinners, I just mean they were sinners. We're all untrustworthy sometimes, right? Even though the Bible was written by fallible and untrustworthy men, because it is also written by the Holy Spirit, the Bible is infallible and fully trustworthy because God does not deceive or mislead or prevaricate or fudge. Pick your word. God doesn't get it wrong. God doesn't do weasel words. And this is God's word. I want you to go back to the Garden of Eden. By the way, it's hard finding a good picture of the Garden of Eden that's appropriate if you're children. Right? <laughs> I spent more time than I needed to on the internet looking for a good painting of the Garden of Eden. Remember that Satan has been attacking God's word 
ever since the Garden of Eden, when he distorted God's command, and he asked Eve, did God really say? Friends, that is Satan's oldest and frankly his most effective play. Did God really say? And you know, we may have fought a battle for the Bible in the Southern Baptist Convention a generation ago. And there are lots of other examples throughout church history and even Baptist history of battles for the Bible. But make no mistake about it, the battle for the Bible began in the garden. And it will not end until that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. The devil will continue to attack God's word. Because that's all he knows to do. Is to sow doubt. To breed mistrust. But remember that the Bible teaches that it is a fully trustworthy written word from the Lord. When we believe the Bible, we are taking God at his word. When we believe the Bible, we are taking God at his word. And I know in this room, we have some here who are preachers and teachers of some sort. And for anybody who preaches or teaches, the fact that the Bible is fully trustworthy means that we need to allow God's word, and insofar as it's possible, not our opinions, to be the center of our teaching ministry. Now, we're human. We can't totally detach our opinions, but we need to let the word do its work. We need to always be willing to revise our opinions, even our strongly held ones, whenever the Bible is clear. Because at the end of the day, if we don't have a clear word from the Lord, we don't have a thriving church. On the last slide, for those of you who are interested, because some of you might be a little nerdy, and that's okay, I wanted to just give you the four different books you know where you are. I'll just say one thing about each of them. We'll take questions. Kevin DeYoung, Taking God at His Word, is, I think, the best introductory level book on this topic for, written for everyday Christians. This is not written for seminary students, not written for theologians. This is written for normal people. You know what I mean when I say that, right? Normal people, regular people with real jobs. Taking God at His Word. But if you're saying, you know what, I read stuff like that, and I want to dig just a little bit deeper. Mark Thompson's The Doctrine of Scripture is what I would call a moderate or medium level. This written for those who maybe you've thought about this some before and you want to dig just a little bit deeper. It's a good book. And I would recommend it. Or maybe you say, I'm really nerdy, and I want to read what they assign in the seminary class. Or maybe you went to seminary. Or Bible college, and you said, you know, I want to be challenged. I want a refresher. John Feinberg's Light in a Dark Place is, I think, currently the best evangelical textbook in print on this topic. If I was teaching a seminary class on the doctrine of Scripture, this would be the anchor text that we would use. And then if you're really nerdy, uber nerdy, like Jeremy nerdy, <laughs> D.A. Carson's The Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures is a 
technical, scholarly, sometimes hard to read, but totally worth it defense of biblical inspiration and authority. It is the definitive work in the English language on this topic. But it's not easy reading. So don't go get it just because you want the challenge. You say, I'm not going to let Jeremy win. I want to read that book too. Got to build up to that one, okay? That's the, uh, that's the marathon. You got to do the 5K before you can run the marathon. So that's what the Bible teaches about its own trustworthiness. May we be a church that listens to and obeys the Word of God for the glory of God, the health of our church, and the sake for the, the sake of the advance of the kingdom. What questions or thoughts do you guys have about this topic today? What are you wondering about? You're ready to go. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, I, I, I agree with everything that you said, but if, if I were to present that to someone who was a skeptic, and they would respond with the challenge of circularity, yeah. how would you respond to that challenge saying, well, you're saying the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. Yeah. What I would say is I've not tailored this for skeptics. I've tailored this for believers at Taylor's First Baptist Church. This is not an apologetic talk. This is about what the Bible teaches about itself. But I think even in talking to skeptics, we have to concede that we can't have a 100% airtight, logical, slam-dunk argument about the Bible or what the Bible teaches without reference to the Bible. Scripture tells us, I just did it, I get that. Scripture tells us the only thing that we're able to prove outside of Scripture <clears throat> is that there is a God out there that we are accountable to. And ultimately, everyone knows, it's written on the heart, Everybody knows deep down that there is a God out there that they're accountable to. But beyond that, we need words from God to uh, be able to explain it. So whenever I get in conversations with skeptics, and I will admit it doesn't happen a whole lot because I teach at North Greenville. Before that, I taught at Center. But when I have been in conversations with skeptics, most typically on an airplane, uh, what I try to do is get them to the gospel as fast as I can because I'm not going to argue them into the kingdom by trying to convince them that the word of, of what the word of God is. I, I've got to start talking to them about the truth claims of the gospel and pray that the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. And so maybe I'm betraying my own hand here, but uh, when I read even Bible-believing Christians who think they've figured out a way to explain all of it without reference to the Bible, I, I think that's a dangerous road to go. There is a circularity to it, but I think it's a circularity of faith, not a circularity of like just the wheel we're spinning because we don't know what we're doing. Yes, sir. What is your choice of a translation that's both accurate and readable? <laughs> um. My, uh, my two favorite translations, and, it, and I'm, I'm going to go 51-49 on them. Uh, the English Standard Version, which is the version that Pastor Josh preaches from, and then the Christian Standard Version. Uh, I think both of them are very <coughs> accurate and very readable. 
I think the NIV is very readable. It's a little less accurate. I think the New American Standard is very accurate, and I think reading it is like the reading version of fingernails coming out on chalkboard. And so, uh, but that's just me. Maybe you like the way it reads. And so I, I think English Standard Version, Christian Standard Version, those are my two sort of go-to translations in my own personal devotional time and whenever I'm publicly preaching or teaching. Uh, I think I've been using the ESP today with these verses. Other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to word this right, but looking at the Bible and the way different faiths look at it, uh, even in just the Baptist faith, uh, how they put their own spin on it, That's a great question. So if all of this is true about the Bible, why do we still have so many opinions, even among Bible-believing Christians, about various doctrines? So we need to remember that what we've been talking about today primarily is the inspiration and authority of Scripture, but interpretation is something different. And when it comes to interpretation, that's where the debates are. And there's a lot of different reasons. Some of it is because, to quote Peter referring to Paul, some things in the Bible are kind of difficult to understand. Now, if you think I'm being unspiritual when I say that, women are saved by childbearing. They were baptized for the dead. The souls down in the netherworld imprisoned until the last day. There's some stuff in the Bible that's hard to understand, right? And then there are other things in the Bible where, especially anywhere that there's a little bit of mystery, it's really easy to want to explain the mysteries. We, we referenced a couple of those earlier, right? And so sovereignty and responsibility. You can get so far over in the, uh, in the responsibility realm, if you will, that, uh, that, that God doesn't really have any meaningful power anymore. He's just kind of the old man upstairs, you know, the rocking chair who wants good things to happen. And you get so far over on the sovereignty side that there's no sense in which we make meaningful decisions that we're accountable for, and that God's like the puppet master. So it often comes to the stuff that's hard to understand or areas of mystery. So I think, and that, now that's, I'm talking about the honest debates. So those are the honest debates. And then I also think we just have to account for human sinfulness. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand about this, okay? Don't raise your hand about this. I'm asking you not to raise your hand. But I'm just asking the question. How many of you ever have ever read something in the Bible that you think is probably true but you wish it wasn't? I mean, that happens. And we know that that's not the posture we ought to have, right? God's word is good. Every bit of it, even the hard part of it. But inevitably, even the godliest person sometimes comes against some things and says, oh, Lord, are you sure about that? We're human. And we're sinners. 
And then part of it is just based upon our life experience. Now, I want to, or our context. Now, I want to be really, really careful here. Okay? Our context does not determine the meaning. The Bible means what it means. Okay? The Bible means what it means. But we can't totally divorce ourselves from our context. There's some things that we just don't see as clearly in Scripture because we don't wake up thinking about those things every day. And there's other things that other people don't see because they don't wake up thinking about it every day. Some of you have done mission work. Maybe you've been in a place where they're in a culture where they take ancestor worship very seriously. I've never in my life gotten up and wondered about ancestor worship. But I have brothers and sisters in Christ in other places who have. And there are certain places in Scripture where they say, well, what are the implications for this for ancestor worship? I never have to think about that. Or what about the husband of one wife? Husband of one wife, 90% of Christians read that in South Carolina. They think it's talking about divorce and remarriage, and maybe it is. Christians in Muslim nations who've come to faith in Christ read that. The first thing they think about is polygamy. And maybe it is. So sometimes there's just honest debates because we can't totally divorce ourselves from our context and our culture. And that informs the type of questions that we ask whenever we get to Scripture. So there's always going to be debate about certain things. There will always be people who are dead wrong about sprinkling babies and calling it baptism. But many of them come by that honestly. They've got theological reasons for believing that, and, and some things about that theology is beautiful and it's right. And in other ways, they kind of get off base. And I would imagine that there are some things, not about the most important stuff. I want to be really clear about that. We're not talking about like mere baseline Christianity. But there are probably some things that we believe that we're wrong about. And I don't just mean me and you as individuals. I mean maybe Taylor's First Baptist Church or Baptists, or Southern Baptists, or Evangelicals, or, or whatever. There's a sense in which we all see through a glass darkly. But, but, if we agree that this is what the Bible is, that God speaks and he speaks truthfully, and if we come to the Scriptures with humble hearts and calloused knees, and teachable spirits saying, Lord, I want the help of the Holy Spirit to understand what's going on here. There will be some things we never fully agree on, but we will agree on the most important things. Because the Holy, I do not believe the Holy Spirit leads us astray. I do not believe the Holy Spirit leads us astray. Maybe if we ask the Holy Spirit more with humble hearts and callous knees and a willingness to admit if he's leading that we're wrong we wouldn't have some of the divisions that we have but they're still wrong about sprinkling babies <laughs> other questions <laughs> yes sir and recently in Bible I'm not sure which controversy you're talking about. Well, there's 
you mentioned something about interpretation and reading those more uh, earth readings uh, of the Bible. Yeah. Okay, tell me if I'm understanding you correctly when I answer this. Uh, first of all, I love the Bible Museum. We're going to be there in two weeks. It's pretty amazing. Um, to the best of my knowledge, somebody can correct me, but if you got it from Megan E, you're not correcting me. You're sharing something wrong. To the best of my knowledge, we have not dug up anything from the earth that would cause us to take the Bible less seriously as the Word of God. We have dug up some things that have helped to confirm about the Bible. Most of what we've dug up is just neutral. It doesn't affect it in any way. But I am not aware of anything that any serious scholars take seriously that just absolutely calls the Bible into question. We dig up conspiracy theory stuff sometimes. Anybody remember the James Bone box a few years ago and things like that, which, by the way, was thoroughly discredited. So whenever it came out, it was, you know, front page news everywhere. And then even when liberal scholars said, this is a bunch of baloney, it was, you know, back page, couple of sentences two years later because... That's the way that the bias works. So I, I'm not, I am not aware of anything that would cause us to question anything. Um, most of it doesn't have any impact, and the things that do have impact are uniformly positive impact and reinforcing. Did you know? Let me give you, let me give you one positive example. Did you know until the mid-1990s, there was no evidence outside the Bible that King David had lived? The only reference anywhere on the planet to King David was in the Bible. And in the mid-1990s, in Israel, going back centuries before the time of Christ, you know what they found outside of the Bible? They found part of a seal that references uh, David, king of the Hebrews. Now, it doesn't say anything about the Bible. And all of this is part of a seal. And it's from the same time period, but it's confirmation outside of Scripture that David existed. Because you know what? There were some skeptics in some places that were saying, well, I don't even know there was a King David. There's no reference to him anywhere except in the Bible. Well, now there is. And that was the beginning, and now there's three or four things that have been found from the Old Testament era that confirm there really was a King David. Now, it doesn't prove the Bible, but it's corroborating evidence of the general truthfulness of the Scriptures, right? And so that tends to be the sort of things that we find over time uh, through, through biblical archaeology. And if you've not been to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., it's remarkable. Remarkable. Not just Bible scholar stuff, but history of the Bible's impact on various cultures. It's just, it's amazing. Can't say, can't say enough about it. I think we have time for one more question. Maybe two if one's a short one. No, I'm not heard of that one. The Passion Translation? Trash. I don't know. Sounds kind of, Trash. Sounds kind of funny to me. I don't have heard of that one.
so those two groups don't approach it exactly the same way. So in the case of the Mormons, uh, this will also apply to various other cultic versions of Christianity. Uh, what they're going to argue is that there's some extra revelation that comes, and uh, in the same way that God or the Holy Spirit or the divine or whatever was at work in the scriptures, uh, this is further revelation and you have further inspired books. Um, and in the case of the uh, Mormon, I think that uh, this is a super nerdy way of dealing with it. Uh, Joseph Smith was just full of it. And even, I mean, Joseph, so Joseph Smith claims that an angel comes to him and gives him a translation in the original language of the Bible in 1830, and it sounds exactly like the King James Bible. Because all he knew was the King James Bible, and so he assumed that the Bible was written with these and thous. By the way, even our friends who are King James only understand the Bible was not written in these and thous, right? It, it reflects a particular, a particular moment in time. And so, uh, so you know, there's, just, there's all kinds of problems with the Joseph Smith story. And once, even if that wasn't the case, the fact that there's so much in the Book of Mormon and there are other two inspired books that contradict Scripture, if we're going, and, but they would say this is Scripture. So if this is Scripture, that can't be Scripture. Because it, it just contradicts them to me. I mean, even who God is, the identity of Jesus, how we're saved, uh, what our eternal reward is on the, on the other side, who Satan is, all these things are different in, uh, in the Book of Mormon and, and their other two books. And it contradicts what they would say is the foundational Scripture. In the Catholic Church, it's a little bit different. To be fair to our Catholic friends, um, they don't believe that the Catholic Catechism is inspired in the same way that the Bible is. What they would say is that it is part of the church's tradition and the Holy Spirit is at work in the church's tradition. Having said that, so we want to be clear that we don't want to slander our Catholic friends. They don't believe that tradition is Scripture. They don't believe that. Now, I'm not saying you might not have a Catholic friend that believes that, but that's not the official teaching of the Catholic Church. However, it is true that our Catholic friends uh, tend to elevate the meaning of tradition so that any time tradition is different than Scripture, tradition trumps Scripture. And so what I would say to a Catholic friend is, uh, you know, if we're talking about the Catholic Catechism, you know, first of all, what I would want to say to them is, uh, I agree with many things that are in that because it's just simply coming straight out of the Bible. Um, but there are some things that don't match up with Scripture. And so here with our Bibles open, how would you, as somebody else who believes in the authority of Scripture, how would you reconcile those things that contradict Scripture with Scripture? And why is this thing correcting Scripture whether, rather than Scripture correcting this thing? And what's the basis of the authority for this thing? And most Catholics have never thought about that. Most Catholics have never thought about that before. Or they say things like, well, they never contradict. And then you show them where they contradict, and they say, but they never contradict. And it, you just end up in circular arguments back and forth on that sort of thing. But um, I'm not sure how well I'm answering that question. But like, these are the conversations. When I have been in conversations with both Mormons and Catholics, and that tends to be how the conversations go at different times. Yes, ma'am. 
to be accurate to the text, but accuracy involves the heart behind it. Okay. Well, I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't sound bad, but I still haven't heard about it, so I'm not going to recommend it. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. There may be some weasel words in there, but y'all, you know, you investigate yeah. it if you want to, but we can say with confidence, you know, your, your ESVs and your Christian standard Bible and things like that. We do have time for one more. That's a quick one. Yes, sir. How do you address the King James author? <laughs> <laughs> Briefly. At 527, I guess. <laughs> the King James only trends. The King James only. Um, okay. So, so, first of all, full disclosure, I just need to tell you this. Um, my dissertation is on the development of Baptist fundamentalism in the South from 1940 to 1980, and there's a whole chapter on the King James controversy. Uh, researched at a university down the road from here, uh, whenever I was a PhD student on Wade Hampton, and uh, <laughs> their, their archives, they were very hospitable to me. Um, I have a lot of respect for the King James Bible. The King James Bible has had a profound impact on Western culture and the English-speaking world. And there are portions of the King James Bible that for aesthetic reasons, uh, reasons related to beauty, uh, I like more even than the translations I recommended a minute ago. The Psalms are an example. I just, I love the Psalms in the King James Bible. So there's that. And, and our King James only friends, when that idea comes around, they are certainly aware of that. So mid 20th century, there's a lot of stuff happening in our culture. You've got the beginnings of the, uh, what we would now call the sexual revolution. You've got the anti-war movement. You've got the civil rights movement. You've got feminism. You've got prayer coming out of public schools. All this stuff that's happening beginning in the mid-50s to about 1970. Okay? So we've got a time of... And by the way, not all of those are bad. I'm just saying there's turmoil happening in our culture, right? Turmoil happening in our culture. Our culture being deeply shaped by the language of the King James Bible. At the same time all that stuff is happening in our culture, you have a particular translation of the Bible, the Revised Standard Version, maybe you've heard of the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, where that translation, while 95% a perfectly good translation, there are several key passages where the liberal biases of the translators cause them to translate it in such a way that conservative Christians read it, and they say that cannot be. The most famous one, Isaiah 7, 14, uh, being born of a virgin, it just simply says young woman. The word can mean young woman. It can also mean virgin. Matthew makes clear it's virgin, but they... They say it's young woman. So now you've got a group of the leading Bible scholars in America that are translating 
this new translation of the Bible that is not the King James, and there are elements in this Bible that are, that are a departure from orthodoxy. All of that is happening in the mid-20th century. 1960s, you also begin to see church attendance decline from a high in the mid-1950s, the highest church attendance has ever been in American history in the mid-1950s. By the 1960s, church attendance is declining. What originally, that whole milieu of things that are happening causes those Christians that become King James only to originally argue that the King James was the best English translation. Now, some of them end up going much further, and they end up splitting amongst themselves. Is it the only English translation? Does it, is it in fact superior to the Greek and Hebrew if you're in an English-speaking context? And these are all family debates that the King James-only friends have. But originally, it was all of that turmoil and a lack of trust in modern translations because of what was happening with the Revised Standard Version and everything else that causes them to rally around the King James Bible. The King James Bible is based off of the very best manuscripts that were available in the 1600s. But we have found thousands of manuscripts since the 1600s. And while they don't change any point of doctrine, they do change some of the words. And sometimes even entire verses. You've no doubt at some point been reading in a Bible where there's a footnote that says, you know, verse so-and-so is found in some manuscripts. You know what some manuscripts means? Not the best manuscripts. You know why they put that there? For people who prefer the King James. King James was based on, the, it was a remarkable work of scholarship when it was translated. But we have better manuscripts now older manuscripts and multiple copies of older manuscripts. And if our goal really is to get as far back as we can, as close to the original autographs, then the King James Bible, as beautiful as it is, is not the most accurate English translation. So nothing but respect for the King James Bible, but the King James only position And I mean this with respect. It is a superstitious view about a particular translation that came about for honest reasons because of real things that were happening in the culture and real liberals that were monkeying around with the Bible. But the solution is not to rally around the best Bible that your great-great-great-grandparents had, but to use the best tools of scholarship to translate the Bible in the most effective way to connect with your grandchildren. And that's what I think our King James only friends are uh, are missing. By the way, do we have any Bob Jones alums in the room? You don't have to raise your hand. Oh, you did. It's okay. But so let me tell you a little bit of insider baseball. This is just that I'll, I'll end with this church, church history nugget. In the 1970s, when this becomes a really hot and heavy debate, there was tremendous pressure put upon the Bob Jones administration from uh, some in their constituency to adopt a King James only position. But the scholars in the Bible department 
if Bob Jones knew that you could not defend King James only because we have better manuscripts now and whatnot. So in what I think is just a super, super strategic move, and I give a, I don't have a hat on, but a hat tip to the Bob Jones administration. They adopted an only King James policy, but not a King James only policy. We only use the King James Bible in our Bible classes, and we only use the King James Bible preaching in chapel and invited speakers, but during the 70s at least, can't speak for later, during the 70s, they did not teach King James only because they didn't believe it was true. But they adopted an only King James position. And the King James only people said, all right, well, they're using the King James Bible. That's good enough for me. If it was good enough for Peter and Paul, then it's good enough for me. Hey, thank you for your time today.